Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our awesome guest is Debbie Levitt, the Mary Poppins of UX and CX and the author of Customers Know You Suck. We're going to talk about customer satisfaction today. This episode is brought to you by Dovetail, the customer insights platform that gets you from data to insights fast. Dovetail has launched exciting new AI features to help you understand large amounts of customer feedback fast, automatically cluster themes, analyze sentiment, and summarize transcripts while keeping your participant data safe and sound. For an extended 30-day free trial exclusive to our listeners, go to dovetail.com slash UI breakfast. Hi, Debbie. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I feel like I should be eating my breakfast while talking to you, but then that would also sound really weird on a podcast. We're so excited to learn from you today. But before we do that, tell us more about your background story, why you're calling yourself Mary Poppins firsthand. Yeah. How did you arrive at writing such a book with a controversial name? Wow, that's a lot of questions. I'm going to write them down to make sure I get them all in. Okay, so first, a little bit about me. Hi, everybody. I'm Debbie Levitt. My company is called Delta CX, and uh, we are a full-service CX and UX consultancy and agency doing projects and training and consulting and kicking butt. And I started decades ago as a kind of a web strategist and business strategist and, and web designer, but I don't have an art background. I really had more of that strategy and psychology background. So over the years, my company has just focused on whatever can help companies of all sizes with their business strategy, their product and service strategy, their, uh, of course, digital stuff and services. So that's kind of my background. I've been a UX designer. I've been a UX researcher. There's so many things that I've done, but they all kind of generally fit into that bucket of CX and UX strategy, research and design. And that kind of led to where my clients started calling me Mary Poppins, because when I lived in San Francisco some years ago, I did a lot of contract work and a lot of consulting work. And I would come into a company physically, you know, that's back when we all stood in offices together. I would go into a company physically. And when I left after my week there or month there, whatever it was, people would wave and go, bye, Mary Poppins. And enough clients did that where I said, oh, I think there's something here. You know, I hope it's not too high ego to call myself that because other people are calling me that and that's how they perceive me. And I kind of like that idea of I'm the person who flies in, fixes everything I can, sings a few songs, and then I've got to fly away to help somebody else. So that's where that came from and why I call myself that. It was because other people were calling me that. And then to answer the third question, the book is Customers Know You Suck. And it is a book about being more customer centric, why we're not and how we got here and what we could do to improve customer, like winning new customers, making them happier and earning their loyalty. So it's kind of a more strategic book in that sense. But for people looking for strategic and tactical books, quick side note, we also just released Disruptive Research, which is 
is for all of you researchers and designers out there. And it's uh, by Larry Marine, M-A-R-I-N-E. I'm just the ghostwriter and the editor, but that's a great one for people looking for a little bit more tactical advice on research and design. Let's actualize the problem. What do you feel is happening in the industry of digital products that made you feel like the world needs to improve on consumer centricity? And sure, it's very easy to say that customers matter, but what's happening in reality that made you feel so bad? Yeah, I think that it was a combination of things, but I think if we start by remembering when we're a customer or we're a user or a potential customer, whether that's a digital product or our good friends, the SaaS system or an app or a service, no matter what it is, we're usually pretty frustrated. We might be confused at some things. We might be disappointed. Think about how many times you want to leave a company a bad review or send them an angry email or write an angry tweet or whatever tweeting is now called. Or We are so dissatisfied so often. And when I really thought about that and kind of dove into that on my own, I just said, as the customer, we know these companies suck. We know they're not doing the best things for us or the right things for us. When I ask people to name a company that is just amazing, that they couldn't live without, and everything is just really good, and okay, maybe not perfect, but really good. You can't wait to do this or use this. You tell everybody how great it is. Most people can only think of one company, maybe two. Otherwise, they tell me their minds start flooding with the opposite. They start thinking about all the stuff that they hate, that bothers them, that frustrates them, that wasn't good enough. And so we can say, sure, we can always do better by the customer. But I think when we remember our own experiences, I think it's easy to agree with, we know most companies suck. However, being in the business of software, customer satisfaction does not always mean customer loyalty or the fact that they will stay because there are other business reasons at play. And people may say, you know, the giants are horrible, but we still go with them because they either have like affordable pricing or they know they're really good at one thing that they really need. And then they stay with them for ages because they have some sort of, you know, integration lock in or something like that. How do you feel about customer satisfaction versus loyalty and uh, staying within a software? Yeah, so you're totally right. We can certainly survey people or send them an NPS and we can find out, you know, do do you like us? Uh, are you happy? Oh, you know, and that that's always very flawed. It can be very peak end rule. I remember giving a company an eight and then their service went down for a day and I wrote them back and I said, send me that survey again. You know, I, I felt very aid about them until they went down for a day, which seems unheard of in 2023 that a company could be that messed up and not have other servers to transfer to. So, but I am still loyal to that company. I hate their pricing. I don't love when their servers go down and yet I haven't found somebody better. So I, I'm one of those people who has kind of medium satisfaction, but ridiculously high loyalty. So you're totally right. The, these two don't always play into each other. But I think that when we do get some satisfaction scores or surveys or other feedback or inputs back, 
we can, and, and of course, great qualitative research where we invest the time and money to do it, we can learn more about what people need. And even if your survey scores are weird and your NPS is garbage, it's still important to learn what are people's tasks because most people are task-based. Certainly in a SaaS system, in most digital systems, we're task-based. And in most aspects of our life, we're task-based. Even if my task is, I'd like to waste 30 minutes on Instagram right now and find some cute dogs. That's a task. And if I see some cute dogs, task accomplished. <laughs> and so if we start thinking about how people are task-based in nearly everything they do, and we invest in learning more about those people and those tasks, how they do them now, where they're inefficient or not going right in the eyes of the user or customer, we need to then be detectives and figure out how this could be improved or streamlined and, and create that. And that's where we have the possibility to create something that really, I guess, almost secures that loyalty. Like I said, there's this company I'm I'm overpaying. <laughs> I'm absolutely overpaying and I'm not always happy with them but I can't even imagine myself leaving because I haven't found somebody who's better. And so they are winning my business by being the best system, even if they're not the best priced system or the best in other areas. And that's because what they offer me matches so well the tasks I'm trying to accomplish. And that's where I think that being more task focused can help us go from more satisfaction to more loyalty. You have briefly mentioned the traditional methods for measuring satisfaction, uh, ranging from the number-based NPS score to maybe more in-depth surveys towards qualitative, I'm assuming, in customer interviews. And uh, observations. Tell us more about these methods or others and what you think about them and how you apply them in your consulting projects. That would be more interesting. Yeah, I think it definitely takes that mixed methods approach because very often, even though I come from a world where to me the qualitative is the best information, nothing beats watching a person do a thing. You're going to learn so much more uh, by being that detective than by asking them what happened or asking them how it went. People don't always remember and they sometimes have a very skewed perspective of what actually happened. Like in the book, I tell a story about watching someone in an airport. They were supposed to gate check their bag where you give up your bag at the gate and they they gave it back to you later. And the person didn't know what to do at all. They put the tag on the wrong bag. They left their bag in the wrong place. But if we surveyed that person or interviewed them later, they would be like, they didn't give me my bag at the right place. You know, they wouldn't necessarily say, I messed this up. So first of all, you can't beat the qualitative. However, many companies operate with quantitative. They use all kinds of metrics and measurements to try to determine, are we successful? Are we growing? Do we have failures? What are the outcomes of those failures? Where are we meeting our goals, et cetera? So in general, there aren't a lot of quant measurements that I truly love because I find a lot of quant measurements related to customer experience to be kind of lacking. They tend to be surveys asking people, did you like a thing or was it easy to use? And I think any of us who've done any research have watched people stumble through something, get everything wrong, and then they go, yeah, that was easy to use or yeah, I liked it. And you're going, no, no, you know, 
that didn't make sense at all. That didn't work for that person. They're just trying to be nice or, or polite. So I think we have to combine both because businesses want to see metrics. They want to see certain things growing and increasing, and they want to see other things lowering or reducing. So, the, But what I remind companies and, and workers everywhere is work with your company to create metrics that look at success from the customer's point of view. We rarely have that. We typically have things that the business wants to see. Revenue, repeat business, number of licenses, how much are they spending, and things like that. But what could we measure, it's going to be different for every company, that tells us that people are having success in our system? It's more than how often they log in. And it's probably more than how often they click a button. So these end up a little bit of vanity metrics or input metrics. What can we measure that's truly something successful from the customer's perspective? This is often things like time on task when not in a testing setting. If you're doing usability testing, don't measure time on task. They're still figuring this thing out. But in general, time on task, we would want to see that decrease. We would want to see that be efficient. But I say cross-reference that with the number of errors somebody might have seen during that task. Because if someone is doing a task faster, we might first think, hooray, customer success. But if they're getting more error messages or having to redo things in some way that, that we can also track and measure, then this isn't a success. So what metrics can you start tracking and what metrics can you put together and, and, com and compare together to tell you people are having success in our system? That's easier to measure in software that has like standardized tasks. Like you can say you do time tracking and your job to be done is to do X and you can shorten that or simplify it into two clicks instead of five. But what if you're selling software that is more on the creative side, like we're selling email marketing software. You can build complex campaigns, write complex emails. They can be as complex as you want. Or if you are selling Adobe Photoshop where you can virtually do anything from cropping a picture towards painting, you know, how do we deal with that? Yeah. And sometimes the success measurement comes from some good interviews with users. If you're not too sure how they would measure a successful experience in your system, which might be more uh, creative or a task that's done over a longer period of time, talk to them. Sometimes I ask people like, tell me about the steps you take to create that marketing campaign and who else do you have to collaborate with and who ultimately approves it and how much time would you say you spend on it? And are you using these other outside tools? You know, I try to get the total picture and then I say, you know, at what point in this process do you feel like it's getting somewhere? Or at what point in this process do you feel like this is finished or, or working before it goes out to the user and we, we see the actual success of the campaign? What's, where do you define success in your process? How do you know this process is going in the right direction? Where do you monitor or measure it? Where are your milestones? Show me, share your screen and show me your project management software where you have um, success milestones along the way. And sometimes those are good clues of anything that we can possibly measure because without that, sometimes you just think, well, the amount of time they spent in Photoshop or Canva or whatever 
is is our measurement. And we just want that to be a high number. We want them to spend a lot of time here. But sometimes people have a task where they want it to be efficient. They want to spend less time there. So it's hard for me to say, always measure this. But I would say you can get some of that information from learning more about your customers' tasks and more of their end-to-end journey to see how they define success. Like if you're a job application website, is it success when you searched for a job and found some good ones? Is it success when you applied for the job but didn't hear back yet? Is it success when you hear back from the job or get the interview? There there are many points here where a, a job site user might feel some sort of success or I'm getting somewhere. And I think you have to learn more about those and see if you can build some metrics around that. In that example with the job search, it's the perfect example when does the ultimate truth even exist? Because there are fractions of success on every step and you can't go to one from doing another. But on the other hand, sure, the ultimate success is having a job. For those, how do you define when it's not as easy as doing, you know, the necessary one, two, three, but achieving success at complex stages? Yeah, this is where we talk about touch points on a customer journey, because at every step that a potential or current user or customer takes is an important one. And even ones that aren't complex or that we sometimes think are throwaway steps can really make or break stuff. Someone called me the other day and said, our sales team is doing a great job selling to people. Then they send them to the website to sign up. And almost nobody signing up. And it was something about the website that was breaking the experience right there. Yet you would think the sales part was the hard part. And just going to the site and filling out the form to sign up was the easy part. But they had made that so ugly that nobody wanted to do it. So I think we do have to take a look at all of these steps and touch points in that experience. So thinking back to the example of the job application, these are all things that we should measure because you're totally right. This is a process and sometimes it's linear and sometimes it's going to be all over the place. But in general, there are steps of this of this larger task of getting a job. But if we see that people are having crappy search results, then obviously the rest of it's probably broken. So if we are measuring something, even internal in our systems, in in our analytics or, or something else, if we can see, gee, you know, people get search results and then they they research again, or they have to filter, or they're refreshing, or, you know, can we track, can we notice anything that's happening that tells us something here isn't quite right, even before we do any observational research and watch people in our search results and get a much better sense of the why. But are, are there analytics we can set up that tell us maybe our search results aren't aren't that great? I remember a company I worked with who, when we looked at their app reviews, there were a lot of app reviews that said, my search results are terrible. I'm trying to find things in a certain region and you're showing me stuff in other countries. And then I'm like, okay, this is clearly broken. So I think that if we have metrics and maybe some voice of the customer work where we're looking at app reviews or tweets or social posts and other things, some people call that social listening, that will give us some clues as well. So we need to measure every step and we need to understand where it's breaking down. But at that point, a mistake that I think a lot of companies make is they guess what's going wrong and they guess the hows and the whys. And they go, well, you know, they're not going past search results a lot. So maybe they just need a different layout. 
And they don't understand that that wasn't the problem. Sure, a better layout could be better. Maybe you'll see a little lift. But was that the real problem? And a lot of companies don't want to take the time to learn that root cause of the problem. They just want to run with cycles of guesses and see what happens. So I think it is important to measure all of these steps and to determine what's going wrong, but to take a little bit more time to learn what and why and not just guess. We all read business books and I enjoy them as well. And we often hear case studies when some company has been struggling and not sure where to put their focus. And then suddenly they do some research and they're like, wow, if we just focus on metric X, I don't know, that could be a very, very weird and specific metric in the customer journey. Pretty counterintuitive. And they're like, we decided to optimize that and our business flourished and that's our principles. Is it survivor bias? Do you (laughs) see that in real companies in your practice, such success stories of simplifying everything to one North Star metric that is like just one touch point or something? Does it work? Should we strive and keep looking for it? Yes, it's a great story. And I think that it really depends on what that metric ended up being, because I've worked with companies whose North Star metric I thought was absolutely the wrong thing to shoot for. Like, like take the job application example. What's the most important thing that can happen there? Well, there's a lot of important touch points there. And where do we find success? But if you think your North Star metric is click apply, Well, it depends how you perceive that North Star metric, because if you decide that you want more people to click apply, then what often happens is what filters down to the actual teams and and the project, the people doing the project is sometimes some unethical or wacky or shady stuff. We start rolling out concepts and A-B tests that might make the user interface more difficult or more complex or remove features you were used to because somebody wants to push you to push this button more because someone above them said, get people to push this button more. And so the question is, will that business flourish? And I also ask, is that a short-term win or is there something that might have happened in the long term that could be a problem? And I, I tell the story of a company I worked with where they did a lot of A-B testing and they found that a layout for one of their, for like their product page did much better than other layouts and they went all in on it. The problem, in my opinion, I wasn't part of that project. My opinion on that project was the way that they laid out the product page completely deprioritized, if not hid, the description of the product because they wanted to focus more on pictures and shipping time and add it to the card and a couple of other things. And they almost made it hard to find the description. The long arc of that story is they started having kind of a a disproportionate amount of complaints and, and refund requests and exchange requests and return requests because people hadn't read the, the description. And so they weren't totally clear on what it was and they were surprised later. So hooray, you made more sales, but what about what happened later? So if a company says like, whoa, we went all in on one thing and now we're just made of magic, I do wonder if that's a little bit of marketing spin. And I do wonder what happened in their longer term 
metrics and and what were they watching? Like, I would need to know a lot more about this story and I sure would have a lot more questions because it sounds like something we need to think critically about. Because while I believe in a North Star metric, I believe that you have to have lots of metrics that you're checking and comparing against each other. What do, would you do with such metrics that don't always linearly correlate with the customer success? In the example with the job application, that could be the number of applications. So on one hand, it absolutely indicates user activity inside the app. On the other hand, it might mean that they're not achieving what they want with that. Or in our email example, it could be trying to extrapolate those business books, like the number of emails per user or something like that, that we could increase or decrease. That does not necessarily mean that the customer is achieving what they want with those emails. And there might be just, you know, implementing something that doesn't always work or even spamming their users. How do we think about those metrics if all we have are these metrics? Yeah. And again, it's not that I'm saying stop thinking about these metrics because even for the job site, I want you to measure how many people are clicking apply. But then I also want you to measure how often they finish the application. And I also want you to measure if anything good happened after that. Did any did someone at least respond to this person or did they get ghosted? Because again, there is a larger user experience than just clicking apply. So I think we do have to watch all of these metrics because they are part of a larger customer journey. But I'm always worried when the business is hung up on a metric that seems to serve the business, but not necessarily the customer, because more job applications aren't necessarily a better thing. And that's, again, where I would want to have done some interviews with people and say, how many jobs is it normal to apply to in a month? Or how many jobs do you think you need to apply to to find a good one? Someone might say 10. Okay, that person doesn't want to click apply very much. Someone might say, oh, based on the last few years, I have to apply to 200 jobs to find one. Okay, that person expects to click apply a lot. So we have to kind of get a sense of people's perspectives on what this is, and those might change over time, hence the importance of that type of research. But I, again, I'm so nervous about people saying, we're just going to optimize on this one thing because I've normally seen that trickle down to the teams as what I'm jokingly going to call evil because it's just like, hey, the, the leaders and the VPs and the execs and somebody, they want to see more clicks on this, or they want to see more of this, or they want to see more mailing list signups, which, you know, don't necessarily turn into more business. And, and when people say that, I always say, okay, and how does this achieve customer goals? And how does this achieve business goals? If people click apply, but then they never hear back and they don't get the job, they might not come back to your site. Even if you made them click apply a whole bunch of times, and even if you deceptive designed them into clicking apply more than they normally would have, if they're not having a larger positive experience, they might say, I give up on this job site. Why am I even here? I never hear back from anybody. I didn't get an interview. This place sucks. So I think we have to watch these metrics, but also look at that larger arc of the, the user and customer experience for where the user perceives positivity and success. Let's talk about customer frustration and sure. the moments when they're absolutely enraged, enraged with <laughs> your software. How can we as product owners better understand and capture that this happens 
And I know it's an opportunity oftentimes to, to interact with a person, but how do we understand that this is happening? And rage clicks, I'm pretty sure, is not the only way. No, my perception of rage clicks is that they can help you know when somebody expected something to be linked or function, but it, it didn't. And, and so that could say, hey, this probably should be linked to something useful. But to me, this is really mostly done with observational research. You're really going to see the disaster when you watch someone in the system. And of course, when you make sure they know that, you know, we just want to watch you use the system and see where it can be improved. You know, it has to be put in that kind of way. You can't be, we want to see how good it is. Well, now you've planted a seed that it should be good. So this is why you want those professional researchers asking the right questions, doing the right things. But mostly we're going to know it from that. Some companies try to be fast and cheap and they'll send out a survey. You know, where could our system be improved? Okay, that's a fair question, but you might not always get the information you'll get from just watching watching people do it. Because sometimes, and this is what's in the disruptive research book, sometimes what we miss, especially when we survey someone, or if we're not good at conducting research, is we miss that people have tools and workarounds that they often add to our systems. Like if somebody's in a SaaS system, maybe the SaaS system doesn't calculate certain things for them. They have to leave the SaaS system, get out a calculator or go to another site, figure out these numbers, come back, put them in the SaaS system. If we didn't watch someone do that workaround or add that tool, we might not know that they're leaving our system for a moment to do something that our system needs from them, but that we didn't facilitate or that we didn't ask them an easier question or that we didn't ask them for the inputs and do the math for them. So we can learn about interesting opportunities like that, but it's really mostly from observational research. I've had product managers call me up as a customer and say, hey, have you ever had a problem in our system? And so they think they're doing that type of research, customer pain points. And I said to them, you'll know that if you watch me use your system. That's the best way to know that. You're going to watch me hit a brick wall. But then I, I'm familiar enough with your system that I, my workarounds kick in. I know that if I do this and then I do this, I'm going to glue your system back together. So the problem is a lot of people might say to that product manager or researcher, or whoever's doing these calls, Nope, the system works pretty well for me, but they don't get to see the, you know, the notes at my desk and the extra things that I've got here to make stuff go better. And so that, that to me is, is irreplaceable. You can run a survey and ask people what's missing. You can ask, when do you get frustrated in our system? You can call people up and say these things, but I find that nothing beats watching people struggle and to see the outside tools and uh, workarounds they use. Wish we could dive into your methods of research, but that's ah. probably a whole separate episode or like it's the lifetime, disruptive research book. Yeah, lifetime's worth of learning for you and our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> it's not that complicated. I mean, to me, it's a little bit of a personality thing. Some of us were that kid. You know, I was that kid interviewing people. I was given a tape recorder in 1976 and I went around interviewing people. And so it's not that wild that now I'm interviewing people, though I have a much better tape recorder. <laughs> so, you know, I went around interviewing people. I was a problem solver. I asked a lot of questions, especially uh, of my uh, father, who I, I saw as much smarter than my mother. 
no offense. You know, he had really good deductive reasoning and logic. And I would ask him a lot of why questions. And he would offer me stuff that I didn't even ask. And it was really encouraged in my household to think critically and figure out root causes and possible outcomes of things. These were things I heard about all the time as a child. That, I believe, is a unique upbringing. I think a lot of people didn't have that. But it turned me into that. I was probably a curious kid anyway. But it turned me into the kid, and especially in a New York culture where we're not afraid to go up to someone and ask them a question. But it made me that person that said, no, I've got to get to the bottom of this. And my family were all lawyers. And they constantly challenged me to explain things. And if I didn't have a good explanation, they would say, nope, I'm not buying it. Where's your evidence? And so, again... (laughs) Not necessarily the most fun environment for a four-year-old, but certainly some good training to deal with today's stakeholders. And so I think that some research goes back to our personalities and culture. It goes beyond, are you curious? But can you think critically? Can you listen without bias or prejudice? Some people are listening for a certain answer and hoping to hear it. I'm happy to hear anything. And so there's a lot of pieces that go into better qualitative research. And I think many of them can be learned. And some of them are probably a little bit of personality and culture. If people want to hear more, read more, uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, there's a few places you can run into me. You can always start at deltacx.com since that will link you to like our YouTube channel and my Medium articles and the books and and then also our project uh, work, our project and consulting work, if that should interest anybody or if I can come in as a fractional leader, if you're missing CX or design leadership or research leadership. So every all roads lead from deltacx.com. That'll help you get there. We do have two YouTube channels. One is Delta CX. One has the very long name, don't pick on me, of customer experience, customer centricity. But hey, uh, you'll find it. We've got medium articles. We've got books. We do free webinars, an average of once a week. And and again, the deltacx.com slash links page will lead you pretty much everywhere. So between the homepage and the links page, I think we've got you covered. You can find me on LinkedIn, though I don't often connect with people. It's just LinkedIn is so easily overwhelming. So I do prefer that if people are interested in my content that they choose follow or that they subscribe to my LinkedIn newsletter, which are really my medium articles just copied and pasted. So there's lots of places to catch up with me. I also have Slack and Discord communities that are free to join. So again, it's a long list of ways that people can connect. I try to make myself very accessible in ways that cost nothing. Amazing. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom today. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks for including me and happy breakfast, everybody. 